question, what do the countries of Bahrain, Norway, Tonga, Cambodia, Denmark, Liechtenstein, and Spain all have in common? Answer, they are all monarchies. They're kingdoms ruled by a king. In the year 2021, there are 44 monarchies in the world, ruled over by 29 monarchs. Queen Elizabeth II of England rules 15 countries or a united kingdom. A monarchy is a country governed by a single ruler. Humans have devised various forms of government, tribalism and socialism and communism and totalitarianism and democracy and oligarchy. America is a constitutional republic. But God's chosen form of government is a monarchy ruled by one man, God's son, King Jesus. At the outset of his ministry, Mark chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4, verse 17, his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came on the scene heralding the establishment of God's kingdom. Jesus came to bring about the kingdom of God. Yet this created questions in the minds of the Jews. That brings us to Luke 17, verse 20. Now, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now, understand, in the mindset of a first century Jew living under the Roman Empire, kingdoms consisted of militaries and parliaments, thrones and crowns, courts and financial markets, ambassadors and dignitaries, flags and fanfare, protocols and ceremonies, pomp and circumstance. For the Jews were looking for a visible, tangible political kingdom. Over and over, Jesus had said that God's kingdom was at hand, but he had produced none of its expected trappings. So here the Pharisees ask him, if you're really a king, and if you really have a kingdom, then where is it? Show us some traces of your kingdom. Well, Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come without observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And here Jesus reveals the mystery of God's kingdom. Before it comes physically, it first comes spiritually. One day yet future, Jesus will establish an earthly kingdom, but for the moment, it's hidden from the naked eye. His kingdom flies under man's radar. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It works in the world incognito and maneuvers behind the scenes. Today, God's kingdom is a spiritual movement in human hearts, not an outward political force. And when men try to make it political, they betray its nature. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul speaks to this point. He says, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, these outward things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Historian Will Durant summed up the difference between earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom when he wrote this, 
Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. Christ wished to remake institutions and lessen laws by changing men. The goal of the kingdom is not military conquest or political takeover. God is changing the world one heart at a time. And this is the current priority of God's kingdom. It reminds me of the father who was on vacation. He woke up early one morning while his family was still in bed. This dad just wanted a few minutes to himself. You know, time to read the newspaper and maybe sip a cup of coffee in peace. But at 6 a.m., his seven-year-old son joined him. He pleaded, buddy, please go back to bed. He just couldn't. The father said again, hey, it's not time to wake up yet. But the little guy was ready to greet the new day. Finally, the dad tried to provide him a distraction. He ripped out of the newspaper he was reading a full-page picture of the earth. He tore it up into pieces and handed his son the scraps of paper along with a roll of scotch tape. The father said, okay, now I want you to go into the den and I want you to see if you can put the world back together. Well, the boy was gone just a few minutes. It didn't take him long to complete the task. The son comes in and he shows his dad the taped up picture. Well, the father was stunned. He asked, how were you able to put the world back together so quickly? And that's when the little guy turned the paper over and he showed his dad the picture of a man. See, he had put the pieces together following the picture on the backside. He didn't know a lot of geography, but he sure knew the shape of a man. And that's when the boy explained, when you make the man right, you make the world right. And see, this is God's plan today. It's what God is doing in the world. He's making the world right, one man and one woman at a time. Well, verse 22, then Jesus said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus knew he was ascending back to the Father, that he would be gone soon. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. See, not only was the kingdom of God spiritual at that time in Jesus' day, but it would continue to be for some time to come. Eventually, Jesus will return to earth and execute a military victory, establishing a political kingdom. And everyone who loves Jesus is longing and looking forward to that day. But in the meantime, his followers can't allow their inner longings to lead them in the wrong direction. And thus, in the next few verses, Jesus provides us some signs of his future coming so that we won't be deceived. He says, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Today we scour and examine world events for tangible traces of God's spiritual kingdom. But Jesus says when he returns, you won't have to look for traces. He's going to come with a bang. His return will have the subtlety of a lightning bolt. No one living at the time will miss Jesus' second advent. Verse 25, but first, Jesus is going to return, but first, a few events will take place. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
And of course, that would take place in the very near future. Like over the next several weeks, Jesus is going to be brought to trial and convicted and persecuted and scourged and crucified. But then he says, as in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. After Jesus is suffering and before he returns to establish God's kingdom, there will be a period of time like in the days of Noah where it will be business as usual on planet earth. People will eat and drink. They'll marry. They'll go about their normal lives, assuming there's no end. Judgment will be lurking, but people will be oblivious. And what a picture of today, where our world is plunging headlong towards judgment. Yet everyone lives with their head in the sand. They live as if they'll live forever. Notice the phrase, as in the days of Noah. Read Genesis 6. And you'll see the parallels between the days of Noah and modern times. And it may surprise you. Noah lived in a day of enormous population growth, as we see today. Sexual perversion and spiritual apostasy plagued the planet in Noah's day. Read Genesis 5, and you'll notice that Noah lived at a time of scientific enlightenment and technological advancement, much like today. The similarities are provocative. I believe it's another of many scriptural indicators that ours is the generation that will literally see the coming of the Son of God. Now, Jesus speaks of the days of Noah as well as the days of Lot. We read in verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And here's the point. The citizens of Sodom were blind to the obvious. On the day God's judgment of fire and brimstone fell from heaven, folks were engaged in normal activities. As if life was going to go on in normal terms forever. Now remember, Jesus is here speaking of the time between Messiah's rejection and his return. And again, it's business as usual. But something else will happen during that time. As in the days of Lot, before judgment comes down, God's people will come out. And Jesus here uses Abraham's nephew Lot as an example. God delivered Lot from Sodom before he delivered fire and brimstone on Sodom. And this is what will happen at the end of the age. Jesus will return to earth after a time of fierce and fiery judgment. But the great tribulation won't fall until the church first rises. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, Paul promises that the church, that Jesus will deliver us, From the wrath to come. God will judge this wicked world, but before he does, the church will be raptured. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that we'll be snatched up to Jesus. That before judgment comes down, we will exit like Lot. We'll escape prior to God's judgment. 
And notice, though he speaks here of the days of Noah, Jesus compares the church to Lot and his family, not Noah and his family. Noah boarded the boat, remember, and endured God's judgment. Noah passed through the flood, whereas Lot left and escaped God's judgment. See, Noah is a type of the Jews who will have to endure the great tribulation, whereas Lot represents the church who will exit beforehand. He says, in that day, or in the day of the rapture, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You remember the story of Lot's wife. She turned back to Sodom and turned into a pillar of salt. This brings up a provocative point echoed in Matthew chapter 25. There you remember Jesus speaks of ten virgins waiting on their bridegroom. Five have oil in their lamps, but five have allowed the oil to burn out. While they're gone to refill their lamps, the groom returns and they're left behind. All ten were virgins, but all didn't go with the bridegroom because some were not ready. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us a play-by-play of the rapture. We'll hear the voice of an archangel and the trump of God. Then the saints are snatched up to heaven. But is it possible that between those two signals, the voice and the trumpet and the actual rapture, that there's a time lapse, that there's enough time for folks to make a decision? Could it be that a moment transpires at the rapture that reveals the heart of every Christian? Like Lot's wife who turned back to Sodom and became a pillar of salt, will there be Christians at the time of the rapture who are so attached to this world that they return for their stuff? That it's proven that they love this world more than they love God and they end up left behind? Could it be? I think this is why we're warned in verse 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Hey, there's one certainty. If you want to be raptured, you need to be ready. Is your heart longing for Jesus today? Are you ready for Jesus? Well, in verse 34, Jesus paints a picture of this event we're discussing, the rapture of the church. He says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Let me just drop a heavy revelation. You ready for a heavy revy? I just got a heavy revelation. God's told me something very special. I'm just going to lay it on you this morning. God told me the exact time of the rapture. That's right. The rapture is going to take place at 3 a.m. I guarantee you somewhere in the world it's going to be 3 a.m. <laughs> when Jesus raptures the church. Of course it will be. Notice here, though, the three activities that Jesus mentioned, sleeping and farming and harvesting. People sleep when? At night. They work in the fields when? When? 
in the morning and they grind grain afternoon. That the rapture interrupts all three activities indicates that it's going to be a global, worldwide event. Well, chapter 17 closes. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, Jesus has been answering the when of the rapture. It happens between his rejection and his return to earth. But here they ask, where, Lord? And he conjures up the image of a battlefield. Listen to verse 37 in the New International Version. It says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Apparently, the rapture will occur along with a kind of military conflict where there'll be corpses on the ground and birds of prey feeding on the corpses. The eagle was an insignia of the Roman legion. Perhaps this also foreshadows a future Roman army at war. Well, chapter 18, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. You see, part of our keeping our hearts looking and longing for Jesus is to pray. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. I hope you know the antidote for discouragement is to stay connected to God. Perhaps the reason some of you are discouraged this morning is because you haven't been praying. You haven't kept the line open in terms of prayer. This is how we relate to God, and God relates to us. Jesus exhorts us here to pray, and he does so with a story, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And here was a judge. He, he was guided by his own whims. He had no fear for God, and he had no regard for his fellow man. Now, in Jesus' day, judges didn't wear nice robes and sit in paneled chambers in fancy courtrooms. They traveled from town to town, and they would set up a tent outside the city gate. The judge would sit in the shade, and he would hear cases, while his aides would monitor who could air their grievance. Usually it took a bribe to get you on the day's docket. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. Now you need to know this woman had three strikes against her. First, she was a woman, which in Israeli society meant that she lacked some of the basic rights afforded to men. Second, she was a widow, thus she had no help from her husband. And third, she was probably poor, unable to afford a bribe. But she had one thing going for her. She had a strong set of lungs. And she could scream. And she snuck up to this judge and she cried out for justice. Verse 4. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. She literally nagged herself an audience with this judge. His motive wasn't rightness or justice. He just, didn't, he just wanted to shut up this screaming woman. Now the judge may also have been concerned for his own safety. For the Greek word translated weary means to blacken someone's eye. 
Apparently, this widow had a vicious hook. Now, I wouldn't say this anywhere where she could hear me, but maybe this was why she was a widow. Maybe her husband had made her mad one too many times. And this judge didn't want to be the next knockout on her list. Here, he doesn't even respect God or even love humanity, but he is afraid of this desperate woman. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now here's a parable of contrast rather than comparison. The rabbis called this form of reasoning light to heavy. A light to heavy argument. If a hardened judge will hear a widow's cry. How much more will a caring God hear the requests of his children? That's the idea. We pray to a loving dad, not a jerk of a judge. God will certainly hear our prayers. Notice also verse 8, we're told that God answers our prayers speedily. The Greek word is tacos, from which we, from which we, from which we get our word tachometer. Your car's odometer measures the distance you travel. Its tachometer measures the speed that you accelerate. When Jesus says that God answers us speedily, he's not talking about the odometer. Oh, there are times when God goes to great length, takes a long time to manipulate circumstances and to mold our character before he answers our prayers. But as soon as he sets the stage... And the lessons have been learned and his purposes have been accomplished. He jumps into action. For when God finally moves, he's speedy. Thus the lesson. Don't you give up before God revs up. Because he's going to in his time. Be consistent. Be persistent in your praying. For Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And true faith is always evidenced by our persevering prayer. Then in verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now notice, he's praying to God Outwardly. But notice what he, who he's really praying to. He, he's speaking to himself. He says he's praying to God, but he's speaking to himself. He addresses God, but he's really just talking to himself. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And don't you know he reached over and he pointed at him standing there? What a pompous prig. He elevates himself and puts down this tax collector. How does he know what's in another man's heart? And yet this is the essence of religion. It looks down on the unrighteous and becomes proud and self-righteous. Well, the Pharisee, he brags, I fast twice a week. You know, the law required just one fast, and that was once a year, not twice a week. But the Pharisee loves to show off his piety. He has sort of a strut your stuff kind of spirituality. 
a showtime religion. He continues to boast, I give tithes of all that I possess. He meticulously tithes out of his spice rack. Every tenth grain of pepper was separated and tithed. The Jewish Mishnah, which was a rabbinical commentary, described the Pharisee. He tithes all that he eats, all that he sells, and all that he buys. And he is not a guest with an unlearned person so as not possibly to partake of what may have been left untithed. And yet all his detailed tithing was born out of selfish ambition. It was a way of promoting himself, not trying to please God. But this is the story of two men praying. Verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector knew he was a sinner. He beat his breast, a sign of regret. He knows he doesn't deserve God's blessing. So he throws himself on God's mercy. His approach is just the opposite, that of the Pharisees. But Jesus says of the tax collector, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. The self-righteous remained unrighteous, while the man who confessed his sin ended up clothed in God's righteousness. Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now Mark's gospel says that Jesus was greatly displeased with his disciples' reaction. How dare them assume that little children would be a bother to Jesus? But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Oh, rather than a nuisance to him, Jesus holds up the child as a model for us all. His kingdom is for adults who are kids at heart. You grow and you prosper as a child of God if you're not so grown up that you become phony or skeptical or bitter or independent, or proud. That's how adults act. But little children, they're noted for their humility and their simplicity and their faith and trust. You get into the kingdom of God by humbling yourself as a little child. And then verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now Luke says this man was a ruler. Matthew tells us he was young. Mark tells us that he had great possessions. Put it all together and what do you got? A rich, young ruler. This guy had it all. 
wealth and health, youth and power. But what he lacked was what he needed most. He wanted peace with God. He was worried about his own soul. And notice what he calls Jesus, good teacher. The critical word he uses here is good. No rabbi was ever called good. Judaism reserved that term for God himself. Thus Jesus is asking, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. In essence, Jesus is asking, when you call me good, do you realize you're calling me God? Is that your conclusion? Are you ready to submit to me on that basis? Jesus continues. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now, it's interesting. Jesus reads off the second table or the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Remember, the first five commandments dealt with man's relationship with God. The last five commandments dealt with his relationship with his fellow man. And here Jesus rules out the last five, for this young man's problem is not with his fellow man, it's with God. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Matthew tells us that this young man added, what do I still lack? He sensed that there was more to being right with God than just being kind to other people. The rich young ruler's problem was not in his relationship with man, but in his relationship with God. He had made money his God. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now remember, this conversation was in response to the rich young ruler's initial question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And some readers have wondered if this means that you have to sell all your possessions to be saved. Well, for this man, that's exactly what it meant. But this may not be Jesus' requirement for all rich folks. It certainly, though, was for this particular fellow. This rich young ruler had made money his idol. See, money's not evil. It's a tool to use for good. But see, he had taken a good thing and had treated it as an ultimate thing. And when you do that, it becomes a god. It becomes an idol in your life. An all-consuming thing becomes your idol. And this is why Jesus tells him that he has to sell all. For Jesus wants no other rivals in our heart. Once you turn an item into an idol, it's hard to wean away. An idol becomes addictive. At times, to break their hold, you have to go cold turkey. You have to sell all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 describes how the believers in Thessaloniki had come to Christ. It says they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Salvation is free. It's a free gift. But you don't follow Jesus dragging behind you your idols. Jesus won't be just one of the gods you serve. If he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And verse 23 is such a sad verse. But when he heard this, 
He, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Boy, possessions have a way of possessing us. It was John D. Rockefeller who said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Remember Lot's wife. Cling to your God, not to your gold. And when Jesus saw that he became, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, Possibly by the needle's eye, our Lord was referring to the small gate of a city through which no camel could pass except unloaded and bending down. At night, the main, game, the main gate of the city was closed so that the only entrance was the needle gate which was the smaller gate in the larger gate. Thus, this camel could only enter the smaller gate if it was unpacked and stripped down. It had to crawl through the needle on its knees. And Jesus is saying that likewise, a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God until he strips himself of all his other affections and bows his knee to Jesus. How do you get into the kingdom of God? By bowing your knee to the king. And then verse 26, and those who heard it said, who then can be saved? The disciples thought that Jesus was being unduly strict. But Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. We forget that every time a person's saved, any time a person's saved, it's the result of a miracle. Salvation is never the result of human ingenuity or human merit, but the work of God's Spirit. Our redemption is an impossibility made possible by the grace of God. And that's true for us all. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he, that is Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. For each of us, there will be attractions or possessions that we'll have to forsake. Yet in the end, nothing we abandon for Jesus will be considered a sacrifice. Our so-called sacrifices will be more than rewarded in both time and in eternity. Hey, swapping the whole world for Jesus is the most lucrative deal you'll ever make. A former oil baron once said, If you know how rich you are, you're not very rich. And that's true of us Christians. We are infinitely rich in yet-to-be-realized blessings. And then Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. 
and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. See, it wasn't what they were expecting to hear. It didn't fit with their assumptions, so it sailed right over their heads. Even though Jesus had told them, the disciples were still expecting a throne, not thorns, a crown, not the cross. And they missed his warnings to them. Well, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now, Jericho means city of palms. It's a warm weather resort near the Dead Sea, just north of the Dead Sea. This is why Jericho had more of its share of outcasts and street people than most cities. Like a South Florida beach town, the indigent and the infirm were the only eyesores in this beautiful city. And here's where we find an apparent contradiction that gets cleared up by archaeology. You know, Luke here says that Jesus met the blind man entering the city of Jericho. Matthew says he met him while he was leaving. Archaeology has shown that actually there were two Jerichos. There was an ancient city and there was a modern city built by Herod. Thus, Jesus met the blind man between the two cities. He was leaving old Jericho and he was entering new Jericho. And hearing a multitude passing by, he, that is the blind man, asked what it meant. And so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And though this beggar was blind physically, boy, he saw more than most men. He had heard of Jesus, and he had concluded that Jesus was king. He was Messiah. He was the son of David, which was a royal reference. He now seizes his opportunity, and he cries out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. Please, I want to I warn you. Please beware of your so-called friends who will try to discourage you from crying out and coming to Jesus. Oh, they'll tell you, oh, don't embarrass yourself. They don't want you to lose your social standing. You know, they're afraid that you're getting too fanatical. You, you make them uncomfortable when you show such a need for Jesus. They'll try to cool you down to their frosty temperature. I am so glad that this man turned a deaf ear to these skeptics. If he hadn't, he'd have been robbed of the miracle that God wanted to work in his life. Instead, he kept crying out for Jesus, and I hope you will too. Keep crying to Jesus. That's where the answers are. Verse 40. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And what sights his healed eyes 
would now see in the days to come. In the next week, Jesus will be crucified for the sins of the world and raised from the dead on the third day. How much this man would have missed if he'd allowed himself to be intimidated from crying out to Jesus. I hope you don't miss a single blessing that God has for you. So let's wrap up this morning. We started by understanding the kind of kingdom Jesus is building in the world today. Let's not get overly political when God's kingdom is still spiritual. Our King Jesus is saving this world one heart, one person at a time. One day, a physical kingdom is coming like a flash of lightning. Jesus was rejected, but he'll return. And in between his rejection and his return as he builds his kingdom, certain events will occur. In a sense, it'll be like the days of Noah. This evil world will carry on as business as usual. While like the day Lot went out of Sodom, God will rescue believers. Before judgment comes down, the church will go up. So, we should pray to God continually. We should persevere in our prayers. And we should approach him humbly as a child. And have no idols in our lives. We should bow to King Jesus alone. For like the blind man who was healed, great will be the sights you'll see if you don't let anyone stifle your desire to seek Jesus and to cry out for his mercy. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning in these wonderful chapters.